This is Lead Like It Matters to God, and I'm Rich Stearns. I started this podcast to explore a critical leadership question. How should Christian leaders live out their faith at work? Over the course of my career, I've been the CEO of a toy company, a luxury goods company, and a large Christian ministry. And I've always believed that a leader's character is more important to God than a leader's accomplishments. On each episode, I'll be speaking with a seasoned Christian leader to explore their leadership journey and the values and qualities they believe to be most important in a leader. Today, my guest is Edgar Sandoval, the CEO of World Vision US, who took the helm from me when I retired in 2018. Now, for those of you who are not very familiar with World Vision, it's a Christian organization that raises about $1.2 billion a year in the United States to implement programs around the world to benefit children and families living in poverty. World Vision is the largest child sponsorship organization in the world, the largest global partner of the World Food Program, and also, has become the world's largest non-governmental provider of clean water, bringing clean water to one person every 10 seconds. So Edgar has his hands full. Before coming to World Vision as COO in 2015, Edgar spent 20 years at Procter & Gamble. As a personal note, I just wanna say that Edgar is one of the most capable leaders I have ever had the privilege of working with in the course of my 44-year career. So, Edgar, I am grateful for you joining my podcast today. Welcome. Thank you, Rich. It's so great to be with you again. Well, listen, instead of jumping right into our conversation about leadership, I want to first talk a little bit more about your background because you didn't have a very conventional career path. You were born in the U.S., but raised in Venezuela, and you came back to the United States right after high school with no money and unable to speak much English. So your story is remarkable. It's really a story of the the American dream. I wondered if you could just start by sharing with us a little bit about that unconventional journey. Yeah, thanks, Rich. As you said, I was born in in the U.S. I was born in Los Angeles to immigrant parents from Guatemala. And when I was a little boy, my family actually moved back to Guatemala and then eventually to Venezuela, where I grew up. I would say my childhood was generally a happy one. Um, However, when I was a teenager, the family started to fall apart. And um, unfortunately, there were times where we didn't even have enough food to eat. My parents separated. And so at the age of 18, I packed everything I owned into my dad's green army duffel bag and returned to the U.S. Um, As you said, I, I came with virtually nothing. I landed in New York City with $50 in one pocket in my American passport in the other pocket. And as you said, in fact, you were very gracious to say that I spoke very little English. I didn't speak any English at all other than hi and bye. And so it was truly like being an immigrant in my own country. And although it was very challenging on the one hand, on the other hand, I had a dream. And like all other immigrants to this country, I was ready to work hard for a better future, Rich. Well. I think you told me one of your first jobs in the U.S. was at the Burger King. Can you uh, tell us about that? (laughs) Oh, well, that's a memorable, that's a memorable job. Yes, I had to take, I had to take minimum wage jobs uh, to keep a roof over my head and, and food on the table. And the Burger King job was certainly the most memorable one. Uh, Flipping burgers on a 500 degree 
uh, grill while wearing a paper hat was uh, truly a humbling experience. And because of my lack of English at the time, uh, quite poor, every order, I like to say that every order was an adventure. <laughs> what, <laughs> there were probably a lot of people that didn't get exactly what they ordered, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. In fact, when the cashier called out the order, I often couldn't tell what they were saying. So is that whole the cheese or double cheese? You know, do, uh, no pickles or extra pickles. So, so I think, Rich, that I was the inspiration for Burger King's campaign, Have It Your Way, because I fulfilled all those orders my way. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, so, so how do you, okay, so how do you get from Burger King, flipping burgers, to Procter & Gamble? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a great story of God's, uh, God's grace and mercy in my life. Um, it's also a story of having the right infrastructure in a place where uh, young people with dreams can actually work hard and achieve those dreams, which is not the case everywhere around the world, especially in the places where World Vision works. And I say that because I first enrolled in the U.S. In a, uh, at a community college, um, and I started to take English as a second language courses just to get familiar with, you know, again with academics and with the language and with the culture. Um, and so that's how I started. But then there was a breakthrough. And the breakthrough is that I was accepted into a four year school, uh, Rutgers University, the state university in New Jersey. And uh, things th that was exciting, although things didn't start particularly well. I remember on the day of my enrollment, uh, I faced a really big disappointment. The, the admissions counselor told me that my test scores were not good enough uh, to enroll in the engineering school. And that was my dream. My dream was to become an engineer. And she said, your, your scores, test scores are not good enough. And I was trying to explain in my broken English that even comprehending, let alone completing the test and all the questions was a real challenge for me uh, having to do that in English. I told her, I tried to tell her, listen, I, I have already been accepted to the best engineering school in Venezuela before coming to the U.S. And she interrupted me mid-sentence and said, listen, study sociology instead. <laughs> and so, and so that's I that's did. a far cry from engineering. <laughs> it's a little different. And, but I, I did, but I didn't let go of my dream either. And when I graduated, I did so with two degrees, one in sociology and another one um, in engineering. And oh, by the way, a minor in math. I later um, earned my MBA from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. And that's when I would say my American dream started to unfold once I had finished my education. You know, that's something we both have in common. Um, as you know, I, I got my MBA from the Wharton School as well. Yeah. And yeah. at the time I applied, it was it was my American dream because my father had uh, dropped out of the eighth grade. and. Mm. Uh, was an alcoholic and, you know, my parents divorced when I was 10. And so for me to be able to get into the Wharton School was a dream come true. And yeah. kind of like your dream, uh, it, it helped punch my ticket for a, a career because once you have that degree and that credential, uh, all of a sudden you become a, a very employable person, you know, and uh, right. that education makes makes a huge difference. But, you know, one of the other things we have in common, Edgar, is not just our Wharton MBA, but um, after working for many years in the corporate world, we both made decisions 
to leave those careers behind and take our leadership skills and experience uh, into a Christian nonprofit ministry, World Vision. And so I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening today who maybe have thought about doing something like that in their own career, maybe mm -hmm. moving from a secular job to a ministry or to a nonprofit job. So maybe you could share a little bit about how did you come to make that decision to take the leap, if you will, from Procter & Gamble, where you invested 20 years and were highly thought of, but you took the leap to uh, World Vision. Uh, what motivated you? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Rich. And uh, I, will, I will first say that after getting my MBA at the Wharton School of Business, I was ready for the pursuit of the American dream. But even that next chapter was another completely new and uncomfortable experience, equally unfamiliar and strange, and that is life in corporate America, which maybe we can talk about later. Uh, but I did have a wonderful career at Procter & Gamble. I spent uh, 20 years there. I was, uh, I was learning in what I would, I consider one of the most demanding environments in the world, how to lead, how to collaborate, how to innovate. Uh, how to grow large and complex businesses. And uh, frankly, after 20 years, I still thought there was more for me to do in corporate America. But the Lord had other plans. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so in 2014, a recruiter called uh, about a, uh, a role at World Vision US, the chief operating officer working for uh, a very esteemed leader named Richard Stearns. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And, and, and for World Vision. And I remember Lace and my wife Lace and I talked about it and we said, oh, World Vision. Yeah, we, we were sponsoring a girl with World Vision. We, so we knew about the good work of the organization. Uh, my mom, by the way, has always been a huge supporter of World Vision. She's the one that said to uh, each one of our children, when you graduate college, I only want you to go sponsor a child with World Vision. So we we knew about World Vision. My mom was a fan. To this day, she's still a big fan. And so I was very flattered by the call. However, I said no at the moment. I said, no, no thanks, not now. And there's, a, there's several reasons, but I would say one of the driving reasons was that two of our four kids, as you know, have significant uh, disabilities, and we had a very strong support system in Cincinnati, Ohio. And for me, the thought of um, of putting my wife and my girls through such a huge change um, was something that I I wasn't ready to do. But of course, I have uh, uh, I'm blessed with an amazing wife who said, Edgar, we really need to be discerning if this is uh, the Lord's plan for for our life. And so we 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 did we we stepped into what I think was a holy time of reflection prayer, worship, even fasting at times. And uh, and we made the decision to come to World Vision. Um, part of it was motivated by the fact that we have two, uh, two special needs uh, girls. And as you know, um, children with disabilities are the most vulnerable in any context. Mm -hmm. And so we thought we thought we may be able to impact the world um, for many more vulnerable kids through World Vision. And um, I mean, and the other part was we saw that the Lord's hand in amazing supernatural ways and signs that we just couldn't, we just couldn't ignore. Yeah. So we said, we said, yes, Lord, here we are. Send us. We're ready to go. Well, I, I can't tell you how many similarities in the way you felt about it, you know, applied to me as well. And I think one, one thing we have in common is we both had very spiritual wives 
who said, we need to listen to God's voice. You know, we this is not about a black and white decision about how much money you're going to make or what your career path is all about. It, this is really about whether God is calling you. And if he's calling you, you need to be obedient. And um, right. my wife was singing from the same hymnal, I think, as your wife was. <laughs> That's right. And, and so ultimately, uh, a little reluctantly, we both came to World Vision uh, <laughs> in, in different uh, years apart. But so once you got to World Vision, um, uh, so again, for somebody out there maybe thinking about moving into the not-for-profit space or the ministry space, what were some of the biggest differences between you know, Procter & Gamble and World Vision in terms of culture or uh, the leadership challenge? Uh, how was the leadership challenge different? I really didn't know what to expect. Uh, like you said, it was a journey of pure obedience. And I knew the Lord was sending us and he would provide and he will fill in the gaps. I can look back now and say that there are differences and I'll speak to those. But I also maybe I can just start with a couple of similarities that are top of mind for me. Uh, some of the things that maybe uh, I didn't know. Uh, at the top of the list is how much talent and competent professionals we have uh, in at World Vision and in, in ministry in the nonprofit world. Equally talented in both places, uh, profit or nonprofit. And uh, I have been blown away by the strength of the, of the talent at World Vision. Many of these individuals could, could be making a fortune in the for-profit world, but instead they have chosen service over self, as I like to say. Yeah. So, so that's one, one similarity. The other similarity is that I, I do think also that the skills, many skills are transferable to either context. And I can see people from the nonprofit going to the for-profit and vice versa, like you and I did. I recall, for instance, when I came to World Vision, how seamless it was, it was to get answers to the relevant questions that can be asked in any context, things like market segmentation or country-specific legal and regulatory context or key drivers or results or capabilities, et cetera, et cetera. The questions were the same, even though the answers may be a little different and unique to each ministry. And, uh, and, the, and the last similarity that I can think of is that in both places, leaders like you and I are focused on improving the bottom line by optimizing the revenue and expense mix, right? That's, that's a, common, a common trait. But to your question, there is also important differences, I think. And in my view, the most important difference is the motivation to optimize that bottom line. In a for-profit, you do it to increase the price of the stock for the stockholders and with it, your own compensation if there's a, a bonus structure, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but in a nonprofit, you do it for the stakeholders, not for the stockholders, for the stakeholders. And more specifically, in the case of World Vision, for the children and communities we serve. The better we are optimizing that bottom line, which at World Vision we call the yield to the ministry, the more resources we can channel to create the impact that we want and help lift people um, out of poverty. So I, I, I don't think about World Vision as a not-for-profit. I think of World Vision as a for impact. That's a great way to put it, Edgar. And, you know, you mentioned uh, at World Vision there were no uh, management bonuses like there were at Procter & Gamble. And I think World Vision is the only place I've ever worked where people that worked for me came to me and said, please don't give me a raise this year. And, and in fact, uh, as you know, your current CFO, when I hired him, uh, a number of years ago, he said, I'll only take the job under one condition. You you don't pay me a salary. I don't want to be paid a salary. 
And it's so strange to manage a group of people that aren't motivated primarily about money, but they're motivated about service. And so the deal I made with uh, your CFO is that I have to pay you a salary uh, just because we pay everybody a salary. Uh, what you do with it is up to you. And I think just about every year uh, we paid him, he donated a salary back to World Vision <laughs> as a donor. So uh, it, it's pretty rare to find people like that that are willing to uh, to work for so much less than they could make uh, in the corporate world or or literally be willing to give their salary back. Absolutely, is the motivation. It's the motivation is largely driven by a desire to serve. And that's, that's what's been so ins inspirational for me. I will always hold the World Vision staff in the highest esteem for choosing this life of service over self for their entire life, right? There's people who've mm -hmm. been who've done this for 30 plus years. The other thing, Rich, that you mentioned to me early, I don't know if you recall this early in our, when we were working together, there was another, another difference. And that was that in ministry, there are no competitors, right? We're all peers advancing the kingdom of God. And we want everyone to succeed because when we do, we get closer to God's vision for the world. And that is a difference. That is a mind shift uh, versus the corporate world where we're trying to, yeah. Uh, you know, worry very much about the competition, et cetera. Yeah, that's that's very true. And uh, you know, in, in in the in the world of uh, poverty and relief and development, um, you know, there's all kinds of quote competitors out there. Save the children, care, Habitat for Humanity, Compassion, and yet we really want them all to succeed because you know they're helping people in the same way we are. And no one organization is going to accomplish the mission single handedly. So, amen. That, that's a great point. Amen. Let me shift our conversation a bit to leadership, you know, and as you know, I've just written a book on something I call values driven leadership. And in my book, I argue that a leader's character is ultimately more important to God than a leader's accomplishments. And, and a leader's character is usually defined by the values that they embrace. Mm. And I, I wanted to ask you the question. I've been asking a lot of people the same question on my podcast can you talk about the two or three leadership qualities or values that have been most important in your own leadership as, as you think about how you lead and what's important to you in terms of your values uh, and the qualities you display to the organizations you lead? What, what were your two or three top ones? Yeah, that's a, it's a tough question because I think you've, uh, you've listed um, some all of the ones that you've listed are so important. Um, but if I had to, if I had to pick, uh, I'd pick uh, three, the top three would be, but they're all important. The top three for me would be surrender, uh, vision and perseverance um, mm -hmm. in that order. And, and I start with surrender because I think as, as you wrote um, in your book, it's, is where everything good starts, uh, surrendering to Jesus Christ to, uh, and surrendering. And also when you surrender, then some of the other things come with it. When you're truly surrender and willing to be transformed, then some of the other, I guess, fruits of the spirits and other things come along with it. And so surrendering for me is, is number one. It's also because my life is a story of surrendering. It's a story of transformation. It's a story of the Lord changing who I was from the inside out at uh, the moment I made the decision to follow him wholeheartedly. And, um, and then there's, I'd say vision and perseverance. Those will be the top three. You know, um, 
that surrender is is really it's the first chapter in my book uh, about the values of a Christian leader, and that and until you're surrendered fully to the Lord, you're if you're working for yourself, you know, if you're working for your own um, benefit or your own self improvement, <clears throat> you. You know, the Lord doesn't want us to compartmentalize our faith into two different boxes. You know, he wants us to uh, uh, be all in with him. You know, and I often say that when we surrender to God, we we take everything we are and everything that we possess, our skills, our abilities, our, our even our families, and we we sign the deeds over to the Lord. You know, they're, they're now he's the owner and, and we're just a, a kind of tenants uh, uh, borrowing those things from the Lord and he can take them away. I mean, he, he could could take away your job at P&G. You know, that's part of the surrender. Uh, or maybe you're running a family business. You know, the Lord might take that away if you fully surrender, but he might not. He might just use you right in that place where you're planted. And so surrender is a little scary because we give up the control, uh, but it shows that we trust the Lord to manage that for us. You know, if the Lord wants my family business, uh, it's his, you know, if he wants my career path, it's his, you know, if he wants my money, you know, I can use it for his, uh, his glory. So uh, that's why I, I put surrender as the number one leadership quality for a Christian. Uh, and I, I'd love to see it at the top of the list. And, and it's one of the things that I love to talk about is, um, you know, my, the best decision in my life was to surrender to, to Jesus Christ. And at the time, um, when I did, I was climbing the corporate ladder. I was, I had a wonderful young, young family. I had been raised to believe in God, but I really did not have Jesus at the center of my life. And, um, and boy, how, how things change to your point when you put Jesus at the center. And I'm so grateful for people that I met um, and the experiences that I had that, that turned my attention to the things that God cares about. Uh, there's probably two defining elements, uh, Rich, that led me to that turning point of, hand, um, you know, turning my life over to Christ. One was, one was a person. Uh, I've spoken to you about him in the past, and the other one was an event. Um, the person was my boss at PNG. Uh, his name is Steve. And when I watched Steve at the office, I, I, I was noticing something different about him. He, for instance, he would never use profanity. He never put people down. Uh, he was never stressed out and yelling, <laughs> and this is corporate we're talking about. Uh, mm -hmm. And so he projected this, he projected this peace and this joy. And I, I often wonder, you know, what does he have? You know, I want some of that. And so he became my my friend and eventually my spiritual mentor. And uh, that led to the second um, defining moment, which was an event. Uh, we went together to the to a Promise Keepers conference in Dallas. It was my first Promise Keepers conference. I never, I didn't even know what Promise Keepers was supposed to be. In fact, where I grew up, men as Promise Keepers was considered an oxymoron, right? So, so I thought, yeah. I thought it was quite interesting, this Promise Keepers men's conference. And I'll never forget walking into that arena with Steve and there were over 10,000 people, old men singing and um, praying together. I didn't know the songs. I didn't know how to pray the way they were praying, but there was something going on in that arena that was, now mm -hmm. I see it as a holy experience. And um, at one point, the band started to play a song that I had never heard before in my life. And that's the song that where I, I feel that at that moment, um, the Holy Spirit just grabbed my heart 
And that's where a whole transformation began to take place in my life. Um, I, I remember the, the words of the song were, here I am to worship, here I am to bow down, here I am to say that you're my God. And I think the reason why those words resonated with me so, so strongly is because it had been a long time, if ever, that I had actually worshipped God, that I had bowed down to God, that, yeah. that I had acknowledged him as the Lord of my life. It had been for so many years all about me. And so there I was uh, with tears rolling down my face um, and uh, just giving my life to Christ. And and what happened after was just wonderful. Uh, I remember coming back home and I, I just came back home with a plethora of knowledge and Bible scriptures. And, and, and I was just downloading everything on, on uh, with my wife, Lisa. She's just silent for like an hour. It was a monologue. And, and then she just paused and looked at me and she said, Edgar, I don't know what they did to you at that conference, but I like this Edgar a lot better. So feel free to go back as many times as you want. <laughs> and uh, and so that's that was the moment of surrender. That was the moment of surrender, and everything changed. The way I let my family change, the way I let my my approach, my job changed, and um, yeah, it's it was the beginning of all the good things uh, in my life. That's an amazing story. You know, the Lord reaches us all in unique ways, and. I want to take a minute, though, to something you said. You talked about uh, your boss, Steve, at Procter & Gamble, and there was something different about him and, you know, the way he reacted to workplace pressures and stresses. And one of the points I make in my book on leadership is that your witness in the workplace is all about your character, you know, and and. If you have a godly character, if, if you're a person of integrity and perseverance and courage and compassion and, you know, all of those things that uh, I write about in my book, these Christian values, people start to notice that there's something different about you, you know, and and you said like he, he seemed to rise above the office politics. You know, he was kind. He was, you know, always kind of steady and reliable and trustworthy. And so I want to say to people out there that are in these secular dog-eat-dog -dog environments, really tough secular environments that God is using you and he wants to use you right where you are. You don't have to quit your job and come work for World Vision. Um, this is a great example because, because of Steve, God used Steve to impact you. And now God's using you to impact the whole world in terms of the programs of World Vision that you're leading and the money that you're raising and the communities that you're transforming. And it all, to some extent, is because Steve was faithful in his role at Procter & Gamble. Steve may not have considered himself a missionary, I don't know, but the impact he had on you was profound. And there's this ripple effect of now, what impact are you going to have on others? And then when you impact all of the people that World Vision serves, what impact are they going to have? Uh, thousands and thousands of you know young children that are getting help from World Vision. So it's a, it's almost like a spiritual domino reaction, right? Where the Lord uses. So for yeah. if you're listening yes. and you, you know you're in a job that might be tough and maybe you don't even like it, uh, just know that God can use you right where you're planted in powerful ways, um, if you can be His ambassador in that place and and be that person in the workplace that walks to a different drummer. Uh, so that people see a difference in you and start to ask, what makes you tick? What makes you different? And the answer to that question is Jesus Christ and your your faith in Jesus Christ. That's right. You know, I just want to, one last comment about these values. 
when I interviewed you for the job, Edgar, I, I mean, I could see that you had tremendous experience and competency in all the right areas. And those are things that you have to look at when you interview a candidate. What are their competencies? What, what, what are their knowledge areas and capabilities? But in, in the interview with you, frankly, it was other qualities that clinched the deal because I saw in you integrity, humility, surrender, a, a deep and genuine Christian faith, a commitment to excellence. I saw perseverance, the, the perseverance that had brought you from Burger King to the top echelons of P&G. And that's why I ultimately chose you. We had other really qualified candidates, uh, but I ultimately chose you because of the qualities, the values that I saw, you know, deep in your character. And then three years later, after you were hired, uh, the World Vision Board did a, a national search for my replacement. They interviewed, I think, 65 candidates uh, for that job, something about 65 candidates. But in the end, the board saw in you the very same things that I had seen, you know, three years earlier, and they selected you to be the CEO, the new CEO of World Vision. So, uh, you know, these these values, these characteristics of leaders matter as much as, if not more than, the resume skills that somebody brings. You know, I'd rather have somebody with integrity and character uh, who's an eight on a scale of 10 than a really competent leader with no character who's a nine or a nine and a half on a scale of 10. I'd, I'd rather hire the person that's a person of character and, and uh and genuine integrity. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I feel the same way in terms of the hiring criteria, Rich, and and this this point that you make about perseverance. Um, I think you, I re, I recall you um, were introducing me somewhere. I don't remember exactly where it was, but you used the word um, overcomer. And there is an overcomer, and I and mm -hmm. I and I always remember that uh, because I think that is. That is true, and perhaps that's why I I put so much value on perseverance as as a leadership trait, um, because you know achieving breakthrough outcomes is not easy, right? And in fact, giving up early, giving up early when things are not going well is a constant temptation. Uh, in fact, mm -hmm. I like to say that the number one enemy of breakthrough uh, work is work that is good enough <laughs> right <Yeah. laughs> and uh but as we used to talk uh when we were working together the the role of leaders is knowing when good enough is okay okay uh, but also choosing areas where a breakthrough is needed and then having the perseverance perseverance the resiliency to keep going to dig deep and to keep everyone mm -hmm. on the team feeling valued and motivated to keep going, and uh, yeah. and that's and that's been a lesson. Uh, that's been a leadership le lesson, I think, of my life. Just to figure out, okay, where is it that I need a breakthrough, and how am I, uh, and, and what kind of perseverance is needed? Wh whether it is getting to the four-year uh, accredited university, um, even though you have to, I had to start as an English as a second language in a community college, or whether mm -hmm. it is landing that you know Ivy League um, uh, diploma or uh, a top, you know, 50 a corporate job or whatever that is. And now, and then now reframing that through the lens of what God wants, how God wants to use you to impact his kingdom and then putting the same sort of lens on breakthrough, but towards the work of the kingdom on, uh, and those, those are some of the things that, um, that I've been able to really enjoy at World Vision um, with initiatives and 
things like the chosen invitation or you might have heard of chosen it's a new invitation yeah. to to child sponsorship but it's but it's i guess the point is the value of perseverance is one that i think is is important for leaders well i, I want to talk a little bit more about world vision for this next question because uh you know at procter and gamble you work for a company that sold toothpaste and diapers and shampoo and you know hundreds and hundreds of other uh, products and at world vision uh your job is to tackle some of the oldest problems facing the human race, poverty, hunger, disease, refugees, exploitation, human trafficking. How do you apply best business practices of transporting it from toothpaste and diapers over to uh, solving those problems or tackling those social problems around the world that are as old as history is, you know, poverty and exclusion and hunger and those, those issues? Uh, so maybe you could talk a little bit about how World Vision approaches tackling those problems, uh, the problems of poverty. Yeah, you're making me think about the PNG mission statement and the World Vision mission statement. I don't recall the PNG as as, as clearly anymore, but it was something about the, the PNG mission statement was to provide products of superior quality that improve the lives of, of of consumers and people. And you're right, that's very different from World Vision's mission, which is to follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in working with the poor and the oppressed to promote human transformation, seek justice, and bear witness to the goodness of the kingdom of God. And in that transformation is, as you've said, the uh, fighting the poverty, the hunger, the hopelessness. I'd say, uh, back to the, the transferable skills conversation we had a few minutes ago, I think some of the some of the training that you that, that I got in corporate was helpful. Some of the frameworks and questions are similar. You've got to start with a definition of success. You've got to ask, well, what works? Uh, what delivers results? How do we know that it works? <laughs> do we have proof that it works or is it somebody's opinion? Uh, how do we replicate it at scale so that more people benefit? What don't we know? Where is innovation critical, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So my, I guess my first point is that uh, it is the work of the leader to help uncover the key drivers of success and then to focus the organization on those drivers consistently and persistently, which takes me into the word that you use, the approach. So then what is the approach uh, that, that you're trying to replicate and scale? In our world vision, our approach is to be and we know it to work is to be Christ-centered, child-focused, and community-empowering. If I'll just take each one of those briefly, Christ-centered, we seek to know Jesus and his love with, um, with the world, Jesus is in love with the world, to transformation, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, right? Our prayer is that it's, it's based on, on John 10.10, um, 10, life in all its fullness, Right for everyone, for especially the children. So it, we believe in in that in that vision of John ten ten, Christ center, child focus. Everything we do, we aim to enable fullness of life for children. And you you, you did this for twenty years, right? Working alongside, we work alongside families with local, national, global partners. Everyone together seeking to improve the wellness of children. And then the third element. I, to me, the third element is also critical, and it's the community empowerment. Community empowerment. We work together. We don't do, you know, we don't tell people what to do. 
we mobilize people to do what they know needs to happen. And we come alongside, so alongside them with supporters, with partners, with communities, with a, we, 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 we enable their plan. We enable the community's plan to lift themselves out of poverty and to create lasting impact that uh, lives on for generations. And, and that's why this is a time-tested approach, Christ-centered, child-focused community empowerment. And that's, that's what I love about World Vision. You know, I used to say all the time that uh, our goal at World Vision is not to give people a handout, it's to give people a hand up. And, uh, and uh, when you do that the right way in a community in Africa or Southeast Asia or you know, Latin America that's uh, a poor rural community, you see, uh, you give the poor dignity, the dignity of uh, doing the work themselves. They want to do the work themselves. Sometimes they just need a little help or some inputs that they don't have. And uh, and the, the, the joy of supporting their own families and being industrious. And, and, you know, I think of many of the micro entrepreneurs that I've met uh, through World Vision, uh, people that we've loaned small amounts of money to who started businesses. And they're just bursting with pride at what they've accomplished. And and I also love to say that World Vision is the only uh, poverty and relief organization I know in the world that likes to say goodbye. In other words, we go into a community with a set time frame, you know, maybe 12, 15 years we're going to be there working with the community. And then we're leaving. We have an exit plan. And uh, because we don't want that community to become dependent, we want that community to become independent so that they don't need an aid organization. And, and uh, that's how you ultimately eliminate poverty in our world is you, you give people the skills and the resources and the tools they need um, to care for their own communities and to care for their, their families. And uh, so, so uh, as you know, I love World Vision uh, <laughs> as much as you do. And uh, I hope people listening that don't know much about World Vision will look into it's it. It's so but, true. And you use the word, you use the critical word dignity. Um, and that's one of the things that I love about World Vision. World Vision believes that every child, every human being was is created in the image of God. And, and they have, everybody, we all have inherent God-given dignity. And we're looking to um, empower people and, and, and provide them with the tools for them to lift themselves out of poverty. But this word dignity is, is at the core of what we believe. And it's interesting because it's at the, you know, I always say that the, the fruits are in the roots. So when something great happens in an organization, it usually goes back to their beliefs, to the roots, to what they were, to, to what they have always believed, but it's now being expressed in a new, maybe modern or refreshed way. And you reminded me again of, of this uh, recent uh, change that we've made on our sponsorship model. Uh, and we call it we call it chosen. We call the 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 invitation. We call it chosen. It's a new invitation to a proven model. The, the proven model is child sponsorship. The new invitation is grounded in dignity. And so now we we have flipped the script on sponsorship. So in the past, um, in the past, potential sponsors would view a set of, fo of of photos of children waiting to be sponsored, and they would select a child. But, you know, about a year, a year ago or so, somebody asked a question. We were uh, looking for a big idea that could, um, you know, bring a lot of new sponsors to so many kids who are in need. And someone asked in a meeting, well, what if we flip the script of sponsorship and we put the power to choose in the child's hands? 
And that was the mm-hmm. beginning of what we now call Chosen, a new invitation to child sponsorship. Well, we're now we're taking photos of potential sponsors and we take those photos to yeah. the field and the children get to choose and, and they are given the choice. Uh, we believe children uh, are change agents. We believe that they are beautiful image bearers of God that can... Uh, from, through whom God speaks, right? And so is this word dignity that you use is at the core of chosen. And what we're seeing, Rich, is, is, is frankly almost unbelievable. We're seeing four to five times the response rates of traditional sponsorship that we used to see. And it's creating a whole new level of engagement for everyone involved. And it goes back to what World Vision believes in, the inherent dignity of every human being. Yeah, that is well said. And that is... Uh... A fantastic uh, innovation and program that I've uh, seen some of the videos and some of the results that you guys have posted. And actually, that's a good segue into my final question for you, because um, you talk about the dignity in each person. And I want I want to read a quote from my new book to you, and I just want you to react to that quote. And it's a quote about diversity. Now you're a Latino uh, working in, you know. Uh, an organization in the U.S. And so you may have experienced in your career some challenges related to your ethnicity or your national background. And uh, this is what I wrote uh, in my book about diversity. The people you work with are each uniquely endowed by their creator in specific ways. Each one of them has a unique contribution, insight, and perspective to contribute to decision-making. Diversity in an organization should not be seen as some box-checking requirement imposed by human resources. It should be aggressively pursued as a vital competitive edge that enhances performance. If your ministry, company, school organization, or team lacks diversity, you're operating with a serious disadvantage. So just react to that quote and uh, maybe share a little bit about your own perspective on that issue of diversity in the workplace. Well, I think it's a great quote. Great quote. Um, and uh, you've always been a champion for diversity. Um, in fact, I want to I want to I'm going to I'm going to throw a curveball at you, Rich. Uh-oh. I'm going to I am going to I'm going to ask me uh, a question and and I want to answer my own question. And the question is, uh, which leadership value do I attribute most to Rich Stern? So you asked me which which were my top three. Well, I'm going to ask myself, which one do I attribute most to you? <laughs> And I have to say that it was hard to choose one. Uh, having worked for you uh, for three years, I had the honor to see all 17 in display at one time or another. And it's, I think it's the combination of how and when you use all those 17 that made you such a strong leader. But if I had to choose one, if I had to choose one, I would say your ability to encourage and affirm me as I made that transition from P&G to, to World Vision, from corporate to ministry. You see, I'm, I'm reminded at P&G, we used to say, hey, there's three variables whenever you change a role. You don't want to change more than two. And the three variables are your boss, your role, and the, your, in the industry. Well, I changed five. <laughs> I changed my boss. <laughs> I changed my role. I changed the industry. I changed the location. And I changed the culture. Yet, seeing how committed you were, to help me make a successful transition was was priceless, was was critical to my success. Your encouragement, affirmation, and counsel was invaluable. And I can say, and I'm going to loop it back then to your diversity question, I can say that it was among the highest levels of support I ever received from a boss in 25 years. 
So I want to start by saying thank you. You have role model um, just from from your own leadership um, values, the value of diversity. I, I wouldn't be in this role if you hadn't come alongside me. Um, so thank you for that uh, from the bottom of my heart. Now, on uh, you, you did you did sort of ask me, you know, have I had experiences with, you know, with challenges with diversity or discrimination. Now, I want to maybe start there and then come back to your quote. I'd say, yes, I have. So have I encountered discrimination? Yes, I have. <laughs> Since I was a kid, from parents uh, who were a little concerned with their kids becoming too close friends with someone with darker skin like me, uh, to a Burger King patron who actually laughed at me when I told him in my broken English that I had been accepted to Rutgers University. He actually thought I was joking. It's not possible that somebody that with such a broken English is going to go to Rutgers. Um, to someone actually using uh, a derogatory term to describe me. Um, to the lady in the admissions office, seeing only my English language SAT scores, but overlooking my Spanish language high school transcripts, and frankly, overlooking my drive and desire to succeed. To a manager in my first company telling me that I had only been hired because I spoke Spanish. Uh, and even at one point being followed by the police for no apparent reason as I was driving my car. And I can say that all of that was unpleasant and disappointing, but it did not define me. And no, nor did it have a lasting effect on me. And I have given this question or this fact a lot of thought. Why did it not define me? Why did, I, did it not have a long lasting effect on me? And I don't really know why, but I'm going to offer two reflections. One is perhaps because my mother <laughs> told us since we were little that we could be and become anything we set our minds to. And she said, especially in America. And number two, perhaps because I encountered more, more support and people who believed in me of all cultures and races, uh, both in corporate and in, uh, in nonprofit, um, including you, as I said. So yes, I, I've encountered discrimination, but it's not defined me. Um, and I've encountered more support, multiples more support than I have encountered discrimination. Now to your, to your statement, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I'll give you the, maybe the, the theological, the Christian point of view, and then the more um, universal point of view on why diversity matters. First, as I said before, as Christians, we believe we're all equally created in the image of God. But we say that, I say that many times, and sometimes the words don't do justice to what the statement really means. We are all equally created in the image of God. That's a profound statement. That's a, that, that statement should make us stop in our tracks, and it should, it should define our interactions with people. How would our interactions and relationships be different if instead of first seeing gender, race, nationality, we realize that we're looking at the very image of God expressed in beautiful, diverse ways, right? Shouldn't we first have, instead of having biases take over, shouldn't we first have a huge sense of respect and admiration for what God has created? So that's the first thing. Second, yes, I agree that because we live in a falling world, certain groups of people have different uh, and sometimes greater challenges. And great leaders need to constantly seek to level the playing field 
so that so that everyone can be fully included, fully valued, and fully contributing. That's what you did for me at World Vision. Even even as a chief operating officer, you did that. You validated my point of view. You you coached me. You gave me a seat at the table. You gave me responsibility, autonomy, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, by the way, you also held me accountable. That's a critical part of it. Um, and then maybe more more precisely on, on the statement itself, I have lived the benefits of diversity, and it's not an HR initiative. I have seen many of the things you write about, um, and I fully believe in it, particularly this point on um, on the vo other voices that need to be part of the conversation. There is there is benefit in in seeking multiple points of views, and my team will tell you, I am constantly seeking multiple points of views, consistently and persistently. But at the same time, there's a watch out. And that is that we sometimes don't need multiples. <laughs> what we need is to hear the one, the one point of view that should have more weight than any of the others. But perhaps we're not hearing it because that point of view doesn't, doesn't have a seat at the table. Or it has a seat at the table, but it doesn't have enough affirmation. And those are the points of view that that come from someone who sees something that the rest of us don't. And I have seen many examples in corporate particularly where the one point of view that should have been heard was coming from the margins and did not have either a seat at the table or enough information. And there was a, there was a price that was paid as a result of it. And so diversity is a beautiful thing. We're created in the image of God. Biases are man-made. We're all beautiful creatures reflecting God's image. And we should be in awe of each other and invite everyone's perspective to the table, but also have discernment as to when we need to listen to not to everyone's voice or to the louder voices, but to the one voice that can change things for the better. Well, Edgar, that's a, a great place to leave the conversation on that high note. And uh, thank you for the kind words about me. Um, I am most grateful that uh, you allowed me to retire. So uh, <laughs> by stepping into that job uh, and being selected by the board, you allowed me to move into retirement. And of course, in retirement, I got an opportunity to write a new book. And uh, I, I think the Lord's not done with me yet. So uh, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure connecting with you again, Rich. Thank you. Thanks for joining Rich Stearns today on the podcast and check out his new book, Lead Like It Matters to God, Values-Driven Leadership in a Success-Driven World. In this book, Rich draws on his experience as a CEO in three different organizations to offer important insights and advice for Christian leaders. Learn more about the 17 leadership values that can transform your own leadership effectiveness. Lead Like It Matters to God is available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats.